This is a production from The Companion. Sci-fi served fresh. Welcome to The Companion Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Cow, and this is my co-host, Rebecca Davis. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Lawrence. (laughs) So, you joined us August Mm -hmm. 22nd, and by the time November 20th rolls around, that's less than three months? Mm-hmm. You're working with, producing, and directing one of your heroes in Christopher Judge, Teal'c. Christopher Judge. Kratos? Christopher Judge? <laughs> Can you describe what it was like? Um, the first word that comes to mind is surreal. Uh, I've... I go to conventions all the time, so I've I've been able to meet these people before, but it was a next level to actually be working with one of them. Um, and then just to have such a positive experience too, to be able to meet him in person and he was so kind, gave me a big bear hug when I walked in, when he walked into uh, to the set and it was just a really great time. And what we ended up filming that day just being able to have all these people in the room together to have this really important conversation. It was just phenomenal. I am super proud of what we accomplished and what we created for everyone that you get to listen to now. So Rebecca, I have one quick question for you on behalf of our members, on behalf of the fans, which is how do you switch from being a fan to all of a sudden needing to work with and direct with one of your heroes like Christopher Judge? The, the big, the most important thing that I feel like in that situation is you have to remain professional, obviously, but I don't think that anyone wants or expects you to completely lose the fact that you, you appreciate these people and you're a fan of these people. So it is that balance, striking that balance between being a fan, but also being a professional. Um, it does come with a lot of imposter syndrome. It makes me feel very unqualified when I'm around people whose whose body of work I know very well. And um, it's a little intimidating, but ultimately it feels like you settle in pretty quickly. Well, from my perspective, being able to see the production process, the chaos, how you got everyone into the room together, I think we can all be very proud of what we accomplished. And it's a really incredible event. Thank you. Been a stranger on the outside looking in. You don't see me when you see me, but look again. Been a fixer, been a breaker, been a hired hand. Yet you ask me who I am. Stone may turn away. 
Hi and welcome, my name is Christina Ariel and today I am joined by a panel of incredible creators, actors, directors, producers to discuss some of the issues that affect us as people of color. We hope that you will enjoy this conversation. It is an opportunity for us to share our stories and our experiences in an effort to make them more universal, in an effort to humanize a people that have been repeatedly dehumanized. And sometimes the only way that you can see a people is to hear their stories and find your empathy. And that's what we hope to do today. And we hope that you come in with an open mind and open hearts. And with that, I'm gonna to go to my left and we're gonna go around and introduce our lovely panel today. Hello. Hi, Christina. I'm Joelle Monique. I'm an executive producer at iHeart Podcasts. My pronouns are she, her. Hi, my name is David Bianchi. I'm an actor, independent filmmaker. I'm also globally known as a spoken word poet. I created an art genre called Spinema, spinning cinema through spoken word. And I do a lot of work in socially conscious art in NFTs and blockchain. Cool. Hi, I'm, uh, I'm James Powell, better known as JP. Hi, Mom. Uh, <laughs> I'm a content creator and producer. Uh, I'm in my first year uh, of production uh, in esports. Hey, gang. Uh, my name is Andre Slide. My pronouns are they, them. I primarily work as a first assistant director on uh, set, so safety, set, scheduling, and logistics. But I also uh, write and produce and occasionally act. Keep it, keep it all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Christopher Judge, uh, actor, writer, producer. Um, you might know me from Stargate SG-1, um, Black Panther, War for Wakanda, or this other deal, God of War. Um, <laughs> thanks. Really nice to be here. Well, thank you all so much for joining me. I'm excited to start talking with you. We've already had a little bit of conversation and getting to know one another time, <laughs> but we're gonna bring that conversation that we've had in private to the public in hopes that, again, we start to form humanity by humanizing each other. So one of the things that we are gonna start with is sci-fi and diversity in sci-fi, inclusion in sci-fi equity in sci-fi, mm -hmm. equity across the board, because that's one of the things that gets lost in the conversation, which is exceptionally important. Now, we're seeing a lot of what people like to call, oh, we're gonna start heavy, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the issue of quote unquote, forced diversity mm -hmm. versus earning your place in a room. And there's this idea that when a person of color is added, it is only to assuage the quote unquote woke mobs. We are gonna discuss the issues of quote unquote forced diversity versus earning your place in the room. We all know that we've had to fight for our space in many a room, in many a conversations, just to even be able to pull up a seat at the table. How does it feel to you as an artist to have to prove over and over that you deserve your space in the room, even with the cumulative years of experience on this couch. How does it feel to have your work 
diminished in that way. And feel free, is there anyone that'd like to start with that? Um, I could start. Um, it's very interesting, as a, con uh, as a content creator, I work in cosplay primarily, and um, it can be quite a toxic place. Um, it's a place where you constantly have to uh, fight for your keep to prove that you know your version of these characters is is something that is to be accepted, uh, and it doesn't really matter what kind of character you choose. Of course, we see it a lot more when you choose a traditionally white character. One of the main characters I do is Kylo Ren. Um, I've been lucky enough uh, uh, to work with uh, a Star Wars celebration and kind of do a couple of different things revolving around that character because I was a, a POC cosplayer doing Kylo Ren. The amount of backlash you usually receive from that is heavy. Um, so it's, unfortunately, it's always felt normalized, right? But that's also the, the state of what we live in. when. When, when your world is built around um, the legacy of whiteness, everything becomes you fighting for a spot at the table um, or fighting for a chance to be recognized or fighting for a chance to, to be viewed in the exact same light as this other person who's chosen the exact same character. Um, in more recent years, I've kind of taken a direct approach because what else do you do? Um, if, if something's broken and no one else is around you, it's gonna fix it, you have to. So. I mean, I, I would say that part of it is me, you know, trolling folks that are there to troll me. But um, more importantly, if some little kid sees that and they want to do it, I've done my job. You know? And in that situation with cosplay, especially dealing with the, oh, you're an inward this or this, mm -hmm. it's being that a lot of people find the most far-fetched idea in sci-fi that someone could be a person of color, not a magical dragon that flies. Right. So how do you decide when to protect your piece and when to engage? I'll be honest with you. Um, I've only really learned, I, I don't, honestly, I don't even think, I can't even say I really learned. Um, uh, I'm a Philadelphian, so I'm very much like about that action. You know, mm -hmm. like, so like I, I don't, for a while, I was just, whether it ate me up or not, I was about it. I was in the comments, I was on, you know, during the during, uh, pandemic and during shutdown, you know, content kind of slowed. I was dealing with a lot of folks' opinions and I, I donated uh, the, the following that I had and like the, the, the amount of marketability I had to the movement. So I would post things and I would get a lot of, lot of negative feedback, a lot of negative feedback. After a while, it's just like, okay, this is what I'm doing, you know? Um, and not to make it sound any kind of way or any more noble than it is, but like, you know, um, any fighter, any warrior, any soldier, they strap up. You know, so like, you put your, you know, you, you put your gear on, you go to work. So I would wake up every day, uh, you know, have some coffee, write down some notes for, you know, what I might have re remembered from a conversation that was continued the night before, something like that. And I just get in there and get ready because everybody's gonna have something to say, but what they don't expect you to have is a response, mm -hmm. and especially one that is uh, valid and and, and weighted in in truth. Right. I think that there's also something to be said about uh, sort of pivoting back to the notion of science fiction, which as a genre was popularized early 1950s around the boom of nuclear energy, space travel, astrophysicism, and these sorts of things. And so the idea of what would be like dystopian worlds and dystopian environments that would be led by the notions of scientists. So looking at that institution of science as it's known in pop culture, it typically is not attributed to people of color, mm -hmm. especially as we look at it in the pop culture lexicon. And so we as a people, 
are continually, you know, wading in the water. Mm -hmm. We are wading in the water. We are the salmon going against the current, a current that is perpetually against us. And so we have had to strengthen ourselves and fortify our mind, body, and spirit to be able to work in a system that essentially is like a casino. We're always betting against the house, and the house most time wins. Mm -hmm. And if you start winning, they're going to figure out a way to call the pit boss to remind you that you're winning too mm -hmm. much. And so these are things that we, just from a social and entertainment structure, have had to fight against. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, in the in sci-fi especially it's never controversial when the alien is black and at one time at one time in the 90s the only black people on television mm -hmm. other outside of sitcoms where there were three of us who, who played aliens in sci-fi shows mm -hmm. never caused any controversy because if they had super strength super healing super whatever they never said this out loud but super intellect it was okay because they're aliens. Some of the biggest pushback in sci-fi ever was Cisco mm. when he was the black commander captain on Star Trek. Now that's when people really came out because to accept that a black man would be leading in the future was hard for a lot of folk mm. to digest. Um, and I find that it interesting that it's still so pervasive. We watch House of the Dragon. We can the suspend disbelief for dragons but not that one of the houses may be black. I really hated that Valyrians were like, old world and have money and we're black. They were like, you can't possibly battle this scenario. Very disturbing to us. Next, they'll be taking our steel. <laughs> um, to answer your original question, how does it make you feel to have to constantly fight for a space you've already earned? I mean, exhausting. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, <laughs> like, I was not born with the fight of a like. I'm not a fighter. Period. <laughs> like, I I'm a maybe a diplomat, but definitely more of a person who's like, where can we find common ground to move forward? Because I don't have swing. I can't do it. Um, but lately, I've had to find that fight in me mm -hmm. because. The only other option is to constantly be spoken down to, particularly, I'm under contract, so I'm not gonna say names, but I work for a company, not iHeart, mm -hmm. hey guys. Um, and I've done a lot of work for them for a while now. They see my numbers, they know who I am, they know what I'm capable of. And yet anytime a large opportunity comes around, something I've put myself out there for, it's suddenly, oh, well, agents, we're not sure. Mm. We just don't know what's gonna happen. Mm. But coworkers, people of similar stature, four or five opportunities in one sitting. It's mind boggling and sitting at that, you know, precipice, you're like, do I, come in here and call y'all out your names, which is what my brother wants me to do. I just go in there and lay it on the table like this is racist. 
do I hurt their pockets? Should I have the capability to do? Do I, or do I try to find that common ground? I'm not, I'm still debating it. I don't know the best way forward because I want to have a long career, mm-hmm. but I also know that my main purpose for being here is to keep a door open so people coming up behind me don't have to go through the same struggle. Mm. And if I don't face it head on, I'm not doing that for them. Mm. It is constantly a struggle to find a balance of how do I be a team player and respect myself at the same time. And I don't have all the answers yet. We find ourselves in this place where we aren't speaking for ourselves anything that we say is speaking for our people as a whole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We don't have the luxury of just existing, showing up. Everything we do in a lot of cases is a movement that we didn't sign up for. Mm. To be the first black anything, to be that representation, to be the first Afro-Latina person to exist and do a certain thing, we don't have the luxury of then coming into a room as the only person in it and expressing how we feel or saying, hey, this is what I need to be treated as a human. This is what I need to just feel comfortable, to feel safe. And we go into so many rooms without the luxury of safety, mm-hmm. but having to fight. And we're fighting with so few defenses because there's no one to be in that room that looks like you to have your back and say, actually, you know what? She's actually right. This is what we need. This is what we need to move forward. And how do you find yourselves with you, MJ, on the production side? How do you find yourself girding your loins to go in for that fight? Um, oh, I mean, I've been doing, I've been first hitting for over a decade now. And unfortunately, the first half of that decade was, I just, I, substance abuse. That was the way that I dealt with it. Where it was just like, this is the thing, you pull your you, you pull your bootstraps up every morning, you put your armor on, you go do the thing because you gotta like you gotta swing. And like and but like I got a lot of that out of my system now. Very grateful for it. But I think now it's why are you worried about getting calls from calls back from people who don't respect you anyways? Mm. And that's the thing that I tell a lot of, like, I tell a lot of people, specifically, people like to shit on production department. Um, We are the department that you don't see on screen, but if you do, it's a problem. Um, But we run, we run the show. And so we do, we do a lot of, we do a lot of the the grunt work. And, I think the hardest bit about it is you, it's not like there is a certain level, you have to deal with the performance aspect of it because so much of our industry is performative. It is, it is smoke and mirrors. The amount of sets that I've been on that had pretended to be bigger than they actually are to the detriment of the people that are on the set is mind numbing. And they'll prioritize certain humans and deprioritize all of the others. And I think for me, I'll just look at those PAs and be like, you didn't want to get called back from those people anyways. Spent the first half of my career wondering why I wasn't getting called back. And it was like, well, was I just showing my ass too much? And it's like, yeah, probably. Um, But also, you don't want to get called back from them either. And if showing your ass basically means standing up for yourself and advocating for the humanity of 
not just the people of color on set, but everyone, because the like set life is pretty inhumane sometimes. Um, yeah, you you get used to not getting called back, and I think the that's when you create your own. Like mm-hmm. you, you like look for me. It's, <laughs> I take, I take, I take certain gigs to basically scout now. Where I'm like, <laughs> you and you and you, you're excellent. We're like this. These were shenanigans. <laughs> but the next thing, we're gonna go. Let's like, we're all parachuting out of this, and then we're gonna go do a thing together. And obviously, that is not sustainable long term. It's not a plan that doesn't fix the thing because you can't just like wall out the toxicity at a certain point you have to stand your ground and address that but like I think it's an 100% fair to choose to bring people on your set that do make you feel safe and and efficient and and those sorts of things but yeah I think the some days I mean I quote unquote choose violence where it's just kind of like we're not we are not doing this we are not doing and it's one of the reasons I picked first assistant directing because I was so tired of not having somebody to advocate for me and so I worked my way up and it took took about three and a half years till I was at a point where I could sort of run the like start to run the thing but you do you take a lot of it on the nose there's a lot of days where I come back and I'll sit at my desk and I'll just start crying because of like you're just you're everyone's parent (laughs) Mm. but you're also in charge of making sure everyone is safe it's it's very weird i don't i don't regret it but it's not sustainable and we got to figure out like one of the things about our industry that we have to figure out across the board is how do we make this sustainable while centering the like if the human experience is supposed to be about enriching people, like if storytelling is supposed to be about enriching people's lives, how do we do that when we are not prioritizing prioritizing the humans who are telling those stories? Mm, I've, I've always said that making entertainment should be entertaining. Mm. And, you know, I, 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 first of all, let me say, you might know I'm a liar. <laughs> um, first AD is the toughest job on a film set. Mm-hmm. You hear everybody's shit above and below you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but aren't allowed to give any back. You always have to be the calm in the storm. And it's a thankless job because you only get any sort of notoriety when something goes bad. Yep. And, uh, you know, I've been number one, number one on the call sheet in a few movies, but never for this extended amount of time. This is my eighth year playing this character, number one on the call sheet, which now has to be negotiated. Um, (laughs) And... I kind of got, you know, doing Stargate, shit flows downhill. If number one was in a bad mood, everybody's in a bad mood. Mm-hmm. Number one's happy, everybody's happy. If number one's relationship, something's messing up, everybody's relationship is messing up. So I, I, I've taken it very seriously about setting 
the tone on a set. First of all, I'm gonna know everybody's name. Mm. I'm gonna know their kids' names. I'm gonna know their wives or husbands' names. And I'm gonna make sure if you go somewhere with a problem and you're not heard, come to me. Mm. I'll fight your battle. To me, my responsibility is to always punch up. Mm. To always make, and, and thank God, my first experience with this, I was had a boss who believed the same thing. That everyone's contribution is equally valuable and we're gonna make sure you know that. Mm. That's a beautiful thing. And that's how every day in the volume is. The smallest gripe is heard because it's not a small gripe. It's mm -hmm. something that's bothering someone. Mm -hmm. And that is to be taken seriously. And I did away with the hierarchy. Mm. If I can make fun of you, you have an open door to make fun of me. And it's on me if I can't take it. Mm -hmm. Right? And it's so important that everyone feels valued and heard and appreciated. And I, I think a, a lot of what we experience could be alleviated if there was just some more <laughs> understanding from the top. Yes. And it's, it's one of those things that the, I think the tension that you were describing where you're like, I want to stick around to keep the door open because we've all got that person mm -hmm. who looked at us and was like, this is the shit. I'm keeping this door open, hell or high water. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You coming up with me. And, and, that's, and that's one of the reasons we stay. It's like, yeah, first aid is a thankless task, but the amount of times that I get to look at a person and be like, hey, you're really good at this. Yeah. I'm keeping this door open for you. Like if I can get people promoted, if I can get them the credits, if I can fight for a better wage for them, mm -hmm. looking at because, oh God, we won't, we won't even, we can talk about a wage gap. Mm -hmm. um, and just be like, that is the, because nobody else is like, Nobody's nobody knows what a first AD is unless you're on set. It's like no, like nobody has any idea. But the the thing is like it's the the world is where I find myself in that space. It's the microcosm of the world that like or example of the larger world where I do have some authority to be able to be like that shit's not gonna fly. We are not doing that here. That, um, yeah. To your point, and I think something that we're sort of talking around almost is like this idea of allyship mm -hmm. and what does that actually look mm -hmm. like and I think particularly when you're black and either coming into a position of power or someone who's held a position of power for a while you have to play double duty as both I'm a black person in this space and I have to frequently negotiate with my white bosses and, and make sure they understand how things are working down here so they can hopefully make better decisions but then I also have to sit in positions of allyship for like my trans brothers and sisters for you know the other black kids coming up behind me it's like and we were talking about it before camera started rolling but like there's legitimate effort in having to do everything that is <coughs> your job in order to make your job still work and it's frustrating but also to your point mj it's like one of the most validating aspects of my job i wouldn't like get rid of it now even though i'm like why do I have to do this? Why yeah. do I have to constantly come and explain to you why this shouldn't be? Or why, you know, we have to have actual, like, 
trans human beings telling their stories. We cannot hire cis people who think they have an understanding. Like, it's it's irritating, but it's also part of the job now. And so I think for me, trying to work all of that in, the, the best thing I've done is say my weekends are my weekends. Mm. I put very hard blocks around time off to say you can't contact me even in this time. I'm not going to read your email. If you need to send it because that's how you work, that's fine. I'm not opening it mm-hmm. until I start my day on Monday because I can't reset and do all the things I have to do through the week if I don't take that time to rest. It's absolutely essential. Yeah, it's the reset. I think it's like, I mean, you you mentioned, uh, like, it was, I think it was before camera was rolling, but the, the idea of intergenerational trauma and the amount of stuff, like, the we have to take special care of our nervous systems because of the amount of shit, like, if we do not have that rest, if it is not intentional, like, there's no fuel, there's nothing to run on, there's no peace. And I think to speak for myself and possibly for some of you, we don't have the luxury of just going to work and doing our jobs. We go into work, we show up, but especially in situations where you find yourself being the only person of color on a set, you also find yourself being an encyclopedia or Google. <laughs> and you are put into situations where you have to answer questions that have absolutely nothing to do with your job. With you as a person, you have to answer, okay, I once heard this stereotype. <laughs> and I want you to tell me why you guys do this. And being put into those situations where you become, it goes back to becoming a spokesperson or an advocate and being put into situations. And that in itself is extremely dehumanizing because there are too many resources available Mm. for me to come into a situation where I'm already coming in and I'm going to, I'm going to present before I open my mouth. Mm. You're going to form an opinion of me before I open my mouth. And then you're going to act surprised when the voice that comes out of my voice box is not what your assumption of my identity is. Mm. And it's exhausting to constantly play that game. It's exhausting to constantly find yourself in a situation where not only are you on your guard, you are expected to answer questions that sometimes are just out of your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sorry, but being black does not necessarily mean you know every single solitary type of black experience. All of us sitting here on these couches have very different upbringings, parents, families that affect the people that we are and that we grow up to be. But we are still fighting against the idea because all of our stories are filtered through this lens of executives who are okay, that story works because, oh, uh, see something, a little bit of something I recognize, but we're looking for coming of age black women's stories and I gotta go back to Crooklyn to find a story where I actually like felt resonates. Yeah, it's yeah. like that resonates. <laughs> yes. And that's not to say like, a lot of people say, no, we can't fund this project. No, we can't get this behind this project because who's going to relate to this story? I, I didn't relate to Veda in My Girl. I didn't live in a mortuary. <laughs> like, my best friend didn't get stung by bees. <laughs> there's, there's levels to this, but we keep finding ourselves fighting to tell the stories that we want to tell. But then we also, back to Game of Thrones, back to The Little Mermaid. We, 
have this layer of thinly veiled racism. And even when these shows are striving to add more representation, again, we are met with the you're only here because we had X space that needed to be healed. You're not here because, and you have to work. And I'm going to speak to this actually with you. I was on, I was creeping on your Twitter, <laughs> and there was a situation when you got the role. Was it 2016 when you got the role of Kratos? 2014. Like okay. So there was a guy who had gone onto your post and he did the thing that people do when they think that they there's know better about your job. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say, there's a nigga playing a Greek. <laughs> and it, it was a guy, he was, you could see all of his comments and all of these things that he's saying and like, oh, this role shouldn't have gone to you. But there was something else that I saw and it was an apology. This same guy came back to that same post where you announced it maybe four years after to apologize to you mm. and to say he couldn't see anyone else in the role. How do you all feel about the fact that we have to go, it's expected for us to go through the harassment just for getting a job? That it is expected for us to, there's no preparation for it. Companies are not necessarily prepared. They don't have diversity and inclusion heads. They don't have teams in place to monitor social media, to prepare you going into things. Cosplay, no one's gonna set you up for success. You're basically taking care of yourself until you have someone mm -hmm. that's there. You fortunately have your own company, but getting into that NFT space, you had to create your own lane to get there. And Joel even if they are there, let's be honest, there's a dollar at the end of the day that they are adjusting to and if it's mm -hmm. not in the company's best interest screw it they're not interested i'm not saving you i'm saving the bottom line mm -hmm. and how does it feel mm -hmm. to know that the egg like i understand it's businesses but to know the eggshells that you have to walk on because you know it's coming you know being in this field like whether it's in front of or behind you are going to walk into a situation where someone calls you out of your name, someone talks down to you, someone does these things, but you are just expected to weather that storm and weather it gracefully. Well, uh, society prepared me for it. Mm. Uh, I knew when I got the gig what was coming with it. I had a buffer. His name was T.C. Carson. T.C. Carson was Kratos before I was. So the studio was really able to say, in case you didn't know, Kratos is already a black man, which was easy for them. It almost diminished what I had accomplished mm -hmm. uh, by getting this role because once again, uh, that now the role required performance capture. Da, da, da. There was screen tests and um, uh, uh, not compatibility, um, chemistry. chemistry, thank you. Mm -hmm. A chemistry test. Every other Kratos there was white. So, but once again, I knew I'm gonna get this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and having had quite a few 10 year olds, uh, Sonny at the time, I think it just turned 10. 
I just treated him like one of my kids. And I could see the executives sit back because I don't know how the other chemistry tests went. But apparently this one went far better. Mm. Carino's had and a big black dad. <laughs> 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 um, so, I knew going in, and to speak specifically to you, uh, yes, he did. This this particular person really did four years later write back and apologize and say I was wrong. And I responded, I said, brother, we're all afraid of change. I'm afraid of change. I'm a creature of habit. Once I'm forced to go out of my comfort zone, I am uncomfortable and afraid. What makes it different is that's pretty much every day of my life. Mm. You know, so for a lot of Caucasian people, the ability to see something new, to get out of their comfort zones is something foreign to them because they don't live every day on edge. They don't live every day with your survival instinct at 10. You know, so I actually applauded this cat for, thank you for your effort. Because mm -hmm. that was an effort to even give it a chance. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, for, for me specifically, it, it comes with the territory. You know, I, I know that it's gonna be met with resistance. I know the next thing I do because I know what it is, is gonna be met with resistance. Mm. And so I go into it girding my loins. Mm. Like, you just gotta weather it. You got, and maybe that'll make it easier for somebody else. Mm -hmm. this, there's, there's something very powerful with hearing you describe that story. And it, it leans into what I mentioned earlier, which is the degree of scrutiny mm -hmm. that we are held to as a result of these public roles that we have the, I think, the blessing and the opportunity to play. I oftentimes have to think about the macrocosm as opposed to the microcosm, mm. because the microcosm is my ego, right? Mm. That's my wills, my wants, my desires, the, thing I, the things I think I need, the, the, my desire to tell you what's up with yourself, mm. right? Whereas the 10,000 foot elevation is, David, your job is to be a good ancestor. Mm. Mm. That's my job. That's the best that I can do sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm not facing German shepherds and fire hoses, but I'm facing a different kind of scrutiny and a different kind of, 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 uh, of magnifying glass that is looking for me to be too niggerish mm -hmm. or me mm -hmm. to be too hood or mm -hmm. me to not be smart enough or maybe not know my lines and not hit my marks. When it comes to being a person of color, there's no such thing as on time. You're either mm -hmm. you're early or you're late. Right. You know, and and I think that I have to step into that to your point about this knowing. Mm -hmm. This knowing mm -hmm. that I I, I want to behave to the best of my ability because I want to be able to create inclusion for generations that are coming. Mm -hmm. One of the most important moments of my young, young life. Now, when I was in second grade, I was going to a public school in upstate New York, and I'll never forget it. I, uh, I cut pictures of the girls in the bra ads out of the magazines, because that's what I like to do. I was drawn to that, and I pinned them on the wall, and the girls teased me, and I got sent to the principal's office, and it was the carbon copy of my referral. 
and the principal had these big meaty fingers and it was a big silver desk and you could smoke cigars at the time mm. and this was upstate Rochester, New York and he took a black metal box out from under his desk and had a silver latch on it he says, he took the carbon copy, he says, you see this son? I'm gonna put this here in my nigger box and I don't want you coming back here because I don't want my nigger box getting full. Jesus Christ. And that's what I learned in second grade, but I didn't know what that meant really. Mm. I then moved to Mexico City for five years where I didn't hear those words. Mm. And I had a pivotal moment in fourth grade where I was cast in my first leading role in a play as a notoriously Caucasian character mm. in a play called Peter Pan, I was cast as Captain Hook. Mm. Yeah. Now, what's beautiful about that is what I had learned in that moment before moving to Mexico, and then when I moved to Mexico, I had the bravery of a Caucasian teacher who said, I see charisma and charm in this skinny brown boy, and I can paint a mustache on his face and give him a metal hook. Mm. And he could say, ah, matey, and tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. If it weren't for that degree of inclusion, maybe I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. Mm -hmm. And so, I'm lucky to be alive, and, and I think all of us are lucky For to be sure. alive in many ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so inclusion, I think, is something that you are so blessed with the opportunity to hire people and us pushing to the notion of we never know who we're touching and how we're touching. Mm -hmm. And that, 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 that drama teacher mm -hmm. back in fourth grade decided to make me Captain Hook mm -hmm. is probably a big part of why I'm here right now. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. get to be a good ancestor as a result of that. Mm -hmm. I just think there's a level of bugging the system that I feel is happening right now that I'm excited to like partake in, mm. even if it's even if it's it's still nerve wracking. Just so what I, I tell a lot of my girls, I'm like, listen, it's I don't want you to think that I don't still experience um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, y'all? When you get to work, you feel like you don't belong. Imposter syndrome. It's still there. It's present all all the time. To your point, I got lucky. So I struggled for like nearly a decade to get a paid gig in podcasting. Mm. I was podcasting like four to five times a night with companies, like being flown out to places to do it, but I couldn't get a dollar. It was so aggravating and frustrating. Mm. It let me to be unhoused for about a year and a half. Mm. Uh, and it was really scary. It was scary. Then I had a friend who brought me in to iHeart to work as a researcher on her show. And that's why I met Daddy Jack, who is the only white man I trust. Which I tell him <laughs> he is brilliant and funny and not at all getting in the people he hires way. He like lets us move as we need to, which was important for me because while I was unhoused, I learned I have ADD. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, this is why I can't hold a steady job. It's not a me problem necessarily. It's a you have your brain is not functioning in a way that society has deemed as necessary in order to be successful. And so I had to address that. And I was able to address it because he also has ADD. And he was like, it's cool, I can provide you this space. You wanna wake up at three in the morning and clock out at 2 p.m., I don't care, do what works for you, just get the work done. And that freedom to just become fully as myself, right, in every single way, to be fat, to be queer, to be black, to have ADD, to, show up fully as myself gave me an opportunity 
to create podcasts that were successful and then to create a program that has, you know, we get to bring in so many incredible people who, like me, have been at this work for a long time and for whatever reason have not been able to find that limelight that they know they're qualified mm. for. And I think it's the most insidious aspect of white supremacy that we still face as a group is this idea of needing to prove yourself, mm-hmm. needing to sound the right way or look the right way, but also like, well, what work have you done lately? Mm-hmm. Was it good three months ago? I don't care what you were going through. I don't care anything about your humanity. I think the it's like this concept, uh, it's manufactured scarcity. <clears throat> a, mm. There it is. And it's this idea that there's not, there's not enough. And it's like, we have never lived in a world where we have been so knee deep in resources mm-hmm. and so knee deep in technology that is allowed to democratize storytelling the way that it is. But there can only be one of us mm-hmm. doing the thing that is excellent mm-hmm. up at the top. And it's like, I call bullshit. Mm. And I'm gonna call bullshit to my dying day because the like the it's this it's this vacuum. I mean most of it's late stage capitalism. Um, <laughs> but like, let's not kid ourselves. And it's all, it's also one of these things, but we're watching it collapse on itself. Mm-hmm. We're watching it eat itself. And I think it's one of these like I'm sitting here right now being like, I'm collecting my D and D party because like the goal is to get get your folks because it's like it's going to collapse it's going it's going to eat itself there's it's going gonna to be our turn next yeah like, to your point like i feel exactly the same way like building community finding these kids sometimes i call them kids but they're not all children <laughs> some of them are in their 40s with families who are like i just feel passionately about doing this thing great get in here like mm-hmm. you're a good person you have good vibes you have an interesting story you're intelligent we can work with whatever else comes after that i can work with that mm-hmm. i can help you achieve whatever your goal literally whatever my bottom line is never going to be a dollar because mm-hmm. it could burn up tomorrow it might not Absolutely. mean anything tomorrow well because it really like it doesn't really mean anything i think that's the other thing where i'm looking around being like credit scores didn't exist until the the 90 like mm-hmm. it's it's all of these it's all of these like hand-waving nonsense things that we've bought into and they have real the wild thing is they have real world consequences yes but it's this is where imagination plays in and this is where science fiction comes in because it's like to a certain extent to certain humans it would be like it feels like science fiction to live in a world with no credit scores mm. Mm. That feels wild. That feels like a complete, like complete otherness. And it's like, no, we could have that. That's the amazing thing about science fiction. So much of it is, there is a world we could imagine that doesn't have all of these things so that we would fight for. And let me say, I do agree with you, but we have to be cautious because we have to give these hopes and dreams to our children, to our peers, but we also have to impress upon them that without a credit score, mm. you can't play in this world right now. Mm. So we, and, and that's kind of how we are still being disenfranchised. Um, after the financial crash in 2007, 2008, I never had a, got another credit card. I never got, if I can't pay for it cash, I don't need it. Mm. So cut to a start looking for a house. We've never seen this. You have no credit, not bad credit, 
you have no credit. It's like, yeah, I haven't made payments on anything since 2007, 2008. Um, well, we can't help you. We see that you're doing well. We see that, but without a credit history nor a credit score, can't help you. Mm. So where we are creating ways to get money, what we are failing on as a collective is ways to keep and grow money. Mm -hmm. Because until we, and it, it is, what you described, that's the goal. Mm -hmm. That is utopia. But until we get there, we have to empower our young people that these are the skills that you need to be a player to get there. Because it's not, you can be a, 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 a device for change, but you have to be a device first. You have to be an implement, you have to be an instrument first. As we, as we build leaders inside of our community, mm -hmm. either in entertainment or outside of entertainment, we could start to create a fabric of organics. So what do I mean by that? So let's look, let's, we're talking about science fiction here, right? Mm -hmm. How do we create science fiction worlds where people of color are organically interwoven mm -hmm. into the narrative, mm -hmm. right? How do we, when we lead with leadership, it becomes an organic part of our nature, nurture nature, and then we inspire other folks to do the same. And that's part of the problem that, I'm, that we see in science fiction specifically is that there, there isn't really any, there isn't much organic sort of BIPOC fabric within the narrative because of where it's being written from. So my call to action to all of us here mm -hmm. as creators is to start working towards that organic nature. Like I think of like Neil deGrasse Tyson, like I love that man. I wanna hug mm -hmm. him. I wanna like have milkshakes with him. You know what I'm saying? And he is very organically mm -hmm. bright and he happens to be a person of color. Mm -hmm. um, a series that I'm currently producing now is a dystopian world in a not so distant Los Angeles um, it is a very sophisticated script that deals with neural implants, hacker culture, the underbelly of black market crime, cryptocurrency, mm. blockchain, metaversal land, territorialism, and all these sorts of things. You know, brain computer interfacing, crypto art, like it's heavy, right? Typically, <laughs> Caucasian themes, right? Right. But you're gonna realize that I've only written one Caucasian, and it's an antagonistic detective. Mm. Everybody else is some sort of shade of brown, black, or, or Latino, or, or Pacific Islander, or other. You mean like the Be world? Right, exactly. <laughs> because I want to, because I want to try to create a, like, start to create a quilt of organic leadership in front and behind the camera so we can slowly educate people and subconsciously reprogram all of us, including mm -hmm. me, to believe that leadership can be of color. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we're ultimately facing a lot is that all the leadership is not is not of color. Right. And that is again why we don't, we have these rooms that don't even realize that they have a problem with diversity mm -hmm. because there's no diversity in the rooms that are making the decision. That's so it right. doesn't yeah. reach that point because no one there has a vested interest in making it better because it doesn't affect them. Mm -hmm. Their bottom line is definitely not being affected for it. They're gonna make money regardless. So they're gonna continue to go down these avenues. And I think I've, I've been to places where, a lot more obviously than I want to, where I'm the only black person in those rooms. And I've been places, I've had memberships at places. 
and gone with my husband, who happens to be white, and he walks in and he gets a welcome home. I'm on his arm. I will have changed my hair maybe a smidge from the time that I was there before. And I will get asked, okay, who are you here with? How can we help you? I can enter the same room as my husband. I remember the day Charlottesville happened. I was out for a bike ride. We stopped and we went to go and eat at Bubba Gump. And I'm holding my stepson's hand, standing there next to my husband. And the lady turns to my husband and goes, how many in your party? And my husband's like, oh, well, we've got five because our families are there. And they look at me, how many in your party? He just told you. Well, how many in your party? And she continues to say this. And it gets to the point where I just don't want to be there anymore because I'm already dealing. This goes to one, that's a horrible experience. But that's one experience that's happening in a day where I'm processing chaos, where I'm watching people get run over by cars. And it goes back to talking about the experiences that we face. To go to work sometimes, we have to go to work on a day where we just watched 47 videos autoplay on Twitter of a person that looks like us being murdered in the street. And we're supposed to not only go to work, be normal, be there, be present, but we are also supposed to explain to every other person that doesn't look like us why something happened that we don't ourselves have the luxury of understanding. And that is a big issue for me is that we don't have time to process before we have to process it for someone else, before we have to make it make sense to someone else that is not us. And you want to ask me, why does racism exist? You want to ask me why we don't have diversity. You want me to sit in a panel like this and talk about diversity and inclusion and explain it so that other people who don't even have to care about it after the conversation is over can better understand it and better and better grasp something that I don't have the luxury of grasping and processing myself. Mm. And that is what is infuriating about the fact that we are having this conversation in a world as diverse as the one that we exist in. We keep finding ourselves in these situations where people don't explain until we are in pain or they don't understand. We are explaining, we are laying ourselves bare, we are putting ourselves, hey, I've dealt with this hurt, I've dealt with this hurt, I've been treated like this, I've been treated as less than, here's my hopes. But a lot of times when you're telling people those things that they very much ask to hear, they are responding from a defensive place. Mm -hmm. It is from a place of, I'm asking you, but I am not asking you to hear you. I am asking you to find a part of me that is made to feel better. Mm -hmm. I need to feel better. You are hurting, but I need you to make me feel better. And in a lot of those situations, when someone has said something, it's one of those things, we talked about it the other day. Mm -hmm. You are dealing with racism in the world and just trying to show up. Someone says something out of the way, somebody makes a comment in hair and makeup, somebody makes a comment in a room, you decide, hey, um, that really made me uncomfortable. Not only do you become a problem, you've become an attacker. Mm. You have become a person who has now made this person feel, and if you correct them and say, and a correction in the sense of racism is very, in dealing with those situations, it's not me saying, hey, you are being a racist. It is saying, hey, what you said hurt me. And I'm giving you the opportunity to course correct 
and to know that it hurt me so that maybe you don't do it to me or to anyone else again. Mm. That is a kindness that I am giving to you. But that kindness <coughs> is received as an attack. Mm -hmm. And it is, well, why would you say that to me? How dare you call me racist? I could be confiding in a friend who happens to be Caucasian about just something that I've experienced. But I have to respond and tell them the story in a way that they are not able to internalize it and take what I've said as a criticism of them, mm -hmm. as a criticism of a whole people. And it's the, oh, I started my sentence with white people. I started with this. I made a generalized comment. So everything said after the point is able to be dismissed. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what I said. You heard white people and you didn't think Oh, like I'm not included in this like bundle or like, hey, like what can I listen to from this conversation and learn from? You automatically said everything you say after this point is invalid because you hurt my feelings because you used a label. Mm -hmm. You use this label and therefore nothing else that you say after this point will make any difference. Mm -hmm. And the thing that we are missing in a lot of these situations in rooms, in our very just every day to day life is just a little bit of understanding, compassion, and empathy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To, it all goes back to the humanity that we want to exist with, the humanity that we hope to l just be seen with a little bit of grace, to not be seen as a threat, to not have to plan how you're gonna dress before you leave the room, right. and how you're gonna talk to an officer that pulls you over when your very skin is threatening. Mm. And, when, and that, that's, a, that's an education that happens in the household, how mm -hmm. to deal with authority, mm -hmm. how to yeah, deal with absolutely. municipality, how yeah. to deal with a man in a, or a woman mm -hmm. in a uniform. Mm -hmm. that's, that's unfortunately part of the language of being a person of color in absolutely. this modern world. And go watch every procedural that exists and you see, I watched Training Day two days ago. Oh boy. Mm. And choices were made. <laughs> strong choices. Listen. Very strong choices. Watching that movie, it is one of those things where you're like, especially now under the eye of all that has publicly happened. Well, a microcosm of this thing we call entertainment is that Denzel won an Academy Award for training day the same year he played John Q. Mm -hmm. A black man who would do anything to save his child. That was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Mind blowing. And the fact that he won for training day, mm -hmm. I literally wanted to quit the business. Mm -hmm. He should have won for Malcolm X. It should have won for Malcolm X, but I'm talking about the same year. Yeah. Glory. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I was like, we've, we've gone nowhere. Mm. We've gone the same thing with nowhere. Viola when she got nominated mm. for the help, and you know she's recently come out and said, you know, I wish I hadn't done that film. It was not worth the nomination, which they didn't even give her uh, the award at the end of the day. It's it's hard, Christina, because you know, as you mentioned, to me, it's come down to a situation of who has power and who doesn't. Mm. I'm no longer entertaining people who don't have power over me with these stupid questions. <laughs> we don't have time, no I don't have time, I don't have time. I have too many things to do, I'm exhausted literally every day, I don't have time to address it. If that ends our friendship, we'll get back. And I, I think, to MJ's point earlier, the power of no, mm. right? Mm -hmm. The power of your no, right? These, we, we have spoken a lot about the way white capitalism has impacted our careers, our daily lives, our childhoods, right? Mm. 
we can't escape that. It, it, it is a power system under which we live. So there, there's no escaping that. What we have control over, and the thing that I try to focus on is, is what do I have control over in this very moment? Mm. Is who do I give my energy to? Mm. And who do I let continue to have power over me? And it's hard because again, this industry is small. It's small, so when you say no to one person, you might be saying no to six people. Mm-hmm. You have no idea who they know, what they're gonna say about you once you leave. How you carry yourself from day to day is not necessarily how people think of you. Just because this is an industry that talks. It's frustrating and it's challenging. But at the end of the day, you have to know who's gonna have your back full time. Not when it's convenient for them. Not when they don't feel challenged. Not when, not when they see an opportunity for them to become successful based off of the success you've yeah. achieved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so. That's you know. I, I, I've raised my kids with. There's only, a hundred percent for you, or a hundred percent against you. Absolutely. Because ninety nine percent for you means they're one percent against you, and that will outweigh. The other 99%. There is no fuck middle ground. There is only these two polar opposites. That's it. And I think if we, a lot of time, and we're that we're the that wasn't so bad people. Mm. This interaction wasn't so bad. We gotta find a silver lining. (laughs) (laughs) And when that's the best you can hope for, Mm. ooh, that's a long road to travel. Well, that's what happens when your entire life is a constantly moving goalpost, right? Mm. Right. Blackness is that in and of itself. We'll give you 40 acres and a mule, psych. We'll do this for you, psych. We've got government programs, psych. And that just- Psych, we just gave you a disease. Right, (laughs) and so it just keeps, when you live an entire existence based around your needs not being met and always based on folks breaking their promises and on the other end other end of that if you take just put that side aside the other folks are overtly against you so the only middle space that does exist is this feeling of of not having anyone to advocate for you other than yourself so that that obviously reflects itself in many different ways um kind of spinning back i took some time to just kind of listen and take in everything because truth be told guys i've I love you all. This is incredible. <laughs> um, but uh, just to, we couldn't do this 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. We, yeah. You couldn't say to me, "I love you, brother." Right. No, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. They kept that from us. Right. They convinced us. Here's the pie. Here's the people of color pie. If you tell somebody else of color you love them, you gotta give them a piece of your pie. Because there's not enough to go around. Right. I worked for George Jackson and Doug McHenry. God bless you, George. He's passed on. They were the first shit. Not just persons of color, two brothers. First hundred million dollar deal in Hollywood. Mm. New Jack City, broke, produced by Jackson McHenry. Now, what they had convinced us as a people, you could be the Jackson McHenry nigger who went to Brown, Harvard, Yale, and Columbia, or you could be the Spike Lee, John Singleton type of nigger. I have still yet to this day ever read for Spike, never read for, for John. And it, it, 
those were how they kept us from uniting power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You couldn't be happy for another brother. Mm -hmm. You couldn't be happy for another sister. You couldn't be happy for them because in your mind, you have been convinced Shit, that's less of the pie I can get. It, it kind of brought me back to this moment that I had with my dad, and I'm, I'm very thankful for him because he instilled me with a lot of, um, a lot of readiness for the world ahead. You know, um, around that time when when uh, Denzel won the Oscar for Training Day, uh, my father and I watched both those movies. I was a total cinephile, so like, you know, I was like, man, look, I know it's probably a crazy film, but you gotta let me check this out. You know. Um, and I immediately became perplexed by that. So I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So we, there's a system that in place, this, at this point, this is a system I want to readily take part in, you know? Um, there's a system in place where this can happen, where someone can play one of the most endearing roles I've ever seen, and also a role that makes me feel so distant from myself, like it's not someone I could ever even see. Like I, I, I grew up in South Philly, I know thugs and gangsters, you know, but I've never seen a person act like this. And don't get me wrong, he won, you know? But like, I had to turn to my dad and go, hey man, um, so is it like, is it really like this? You know, like like everywhere? You know, and I, I mean, at that point, I'd come up against plenty of racism, and at that point, he moved me to the burbs, so day to day, you know? But um, mm -hmm. he goes, yeah man, he goes, uh, two things. He goes, you know, if you, uh, if you want to break the game, you got to learn how to play it first, which, yeah. you know, uh, and uh, blackness is like bodybuilding. If you want anything great, you know it has to come with a ton of resistance, mm -hmm. point blank. You have to, you, you have to go in and, and, uh, and, and take that with everything. And so um, coming into the spaces that I come into now, there's you know, almost constant frustration, whether it be uh, uh, on a set, whether it be a discussion about equity, whether it be something that is that is uh, based in current events. I, I've, uh, uh, to some of the, 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 uh, the concepts you were speaking of earlier, where you almost have to become this education system um, in an effort to achieve any level of allyship, right? Mm -hmm. um, that became a regular everyday part of my life during the, during the pandemic. I, I'd marched 10 times, I'd spoken from uh, San Diego to, to Seattle at the Chop and Chaz, um, and every day it was, you know, some person coming to, ask me things for their own purposes. Now, I have a very like 50-50 mindset about that because I feel like some people are, they're like golden retrievers, you know? They mean well, but they just don't. There's nothing, <laughs> nothing you can do about it, right? And mm -hmm. those people, sometimes you have to take the time to educate them because they might not have anybody else in their life that will do that. Mm. But you can tell the person that's there to talk to you for themselves. Mm -hmm. And those are the folks I do not have time for. Mm -hmm. you know? And I take, I take a bit of your energy. Hey, look, listen, I want to help you, but I feel like a lot of this you can Google, mm. you know? Um, that's kind. You're that's such a kind and gentle response. I just, I try. That's not the only response they get, but that's the, that's, that's the one I keep in my wallet for sure. If your allyship ends like when you get uncomfortable, then you need to question whether or not you're an ally. Exactly. I think exactly. one of my favorite things that I started to instill, probably like late spring, early summer 2020 during the uprisings, I, I looked at several of my white friends and I said, y'all collect your people. Mm. Hey. If y'all people have questions, I will, I'm gonna call you up and be like, go get your people because I'm not answering these questions anymore. So I have like three white friends that I'll call up and be like, this other human, you need to talk to them because they're asking me stupid questions and I'm not doing this emotional labor anymore. Like I'm just not, I'm not doing it. If they can't Google, cause a lot of times I think be like, I'll be like, oh my God, it's on Google, go, go hither. 
but I think it is, there's a human element to that. It's also really nice when another white person looks at another white person and says, hey, this is our problem. Yeah. So let's talk through mm -hmm. this. Again, a yeah. solid ally. Yeah, and I'll just be like, but that's emotional labor y'all get to take <laughs> mm -hmm. because I got my I'm I got my own shit. I got so much shit. Mm -hmm. Like cause it's I mean I have an emotional labor rate sheet if you'd like to see it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm dead ass. I was on this feature, I was on this feature in Chicago and I ended up quitting it. I was first AD and I was just like, I'm not doing this because it was just like, the director was a, he called himself a working actor, which was a joke. Oh, he hasn't boy. been on, he hasn't been on screen in 15 years. Mm. He's a glorified CrossFit instructor. And, um. Tell like it is. And, uh. <laughs> but he was put in charge of the $750,000 movie. Mm -hmm. And I'm over here being like, you don't, what are we, it's the smoke and mirrors thing oh, yeah. again. Yeah. And then the producer was like, well, if you could just explain to him what you need. His job? And I was like, stop. <laughs> no, no, no. He's an oversized man child. Yeah. And there are a lot of other things that I could be saying right now. They're like, well, I mean, I just, I laid them out before I quit. <laughs> um, but also I started sobbing because I was so tired. Mm. And, but they were, and they're like, because the vast majority of my department were people of color. Mm. And were people who were just getting in the industry, who wanted the opportunity. This was the biggest film that they had been on. And I was like, trying not to be this jaded ass motherfucker over mm. here. But I was just like, I I started crying because there was no, I did not have anything else left in the tank to keep them safe too. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the like, that's the part that I get I get scared about for the folks who are holding the door open. It's just like we can't do it forever. Mm -hmm. So it's like the when you when you're talking about sort of like like you said knowing knowing the rules in order so that we can change them. I feel like we know the rules now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like most of us know the rules. And also there's a lot of, I mean, like Gen Z's over here being like, these rules seem stupid. That's the word. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot wait. Yeah, these <laughs> rules, they're like, all these rules seem real dumb they and, are and, and bad for us. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, Come with you me. are correct. <laughs> let's, let's do this. And they're like, yeah, we want financial literacy and we want media literacy and all of these other things. But like, if it smells like shit, it's probably shit. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't be doing that anymore. Mm. And I think the like, I think that's why it's so it's so fascinating just to see. And obviously, I'm an elder millennial, but like Gen Z's got their issues. Mm -hmm. They're like, I mean, the perpetually online thing. I'd be like, sometimes I'm just like, if you got off the internet, and but I think the like, I have I have so much hope, mm -hmm. and I'm not. I like, I grew up, I was adopted, predominantly white family, super religious, super conservative. Not all of those things automatically equal transphobic and racist household. But it did. It kind of did. <laughs> it was close. Um, and so like, I didn't have the parents who were showing me the things. I didn't have the aunties. I didn't have the uncles. There was just, and like, I didn't have I didn't have the people. I didn't have the people in person, but I had I had books mm. and I had stories. And my parents censored music and they censored movies, but they didn't censor. They books. never read the books. They never. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> it's wild to me. It's so it's like when I got that library card, I was like, 
like when I got the adult library card and I was out of the juvenile section, you would like you would have thought I won the motherfucking lottery. Um, you did. And um, yes, yeah. I literally was about to be like to quote the great philosopher Arthur: "Having fun isn't hard, hard when, when you, you got a library card." <laughs> and um, and that was it. That was the. That's when it cracked open. Where I was like, I was on this hunt to find people who didn't feel like they fit. There was an outside, there was something, but they they were at war with their brains and their bodies, but they also loved them. And I think that was so much of the way that I grew up where I was like, I am in this vessel and I am with this brain. And there are so many parts of myself that I understand that I like, and I don't understand why the rest of the world has a problem with it. Mm -hmm. And to see characters and to like, in my mind's eye reflected on the page who get it. And like, I was talking, I was talking to a, a close friend recently where like, A Wrinkle in Time, the film adaptation had its problems. Mm -hmm. It's a terrible movie. Oh, like right now, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this movie at my grown ass age. Well, and I think the, the, the reason I bring it up is because when I read the book originally, Meg Murray was a black girl. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't, like, it never questioned, like, in my mind, I never questioned that Meg Murray was anything but what I was. Mm -hmm. And to see, to see her operate in these spaces and, like, to have the witches look at her and be like, no, exactly the thing that you are, all of the things that have made the world look at you and say no are the reason that you are able to complete this thing. Nobody else, your super smart, intelligent little brother, he's not gonna be the one who can crack it. Mm -hmm. And like, it never crossed my mind that Meg Murray is probably white and Irish. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was we like, see ourselves in the stories yeah, we're reading. Right. You create those narratives. Yeah, and I think the like, so the like, I don't know, that was a giant ramble fest on my part. I got real passionate. Um, <laughs> Listen, but I, passion is, go for it. We always you know go on, err on the side of passion because that passion is honest and it is, We I think sometimes we get mistaken for angry and all of these different things yes. when we are literally just being passionate, but we're going to take a passionate bathroom break. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> If they just showed you a break, we're back from it. <laughs> and if you can't tell from my demeanor, there's something that we're gonna talk about that we don't get to see a lot in stories lately. We're gonna skip the trauma and we're gonna talk about our joy. Yay. We're gonna talk about fandoms that make us happy. We're gonna talk about where we are right now, what we're looking forward to possibly. I don't know, the sky is the limit. Let's experience the greatest way to see a person is to see them talk about something that they are absolutely passionate about. And I want to see the passion on this couch. And I'm going to start to my left, little Joelle. Oh, crap. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm passionate about so many. I'm really passionate about, like, fandom specifically. I think when you can get into the groove of a good fandom, and you can tell, like, for me, I love Star Wars. I love it so much. I like, I, I like, pirates in it and I like the aliens. I like the ships and I like the intrigue. I like the political thriller of it and I like the magic wizards. Everything about it is so cool. And when you get into the right space of that fandom, oh my god. Like I had 
one of my best friends and I are watching Andor separately. And so we finally got a chance to come together and talk about the latest episode. And when I tell you we went on for 45 minutes about one scene and whether it's plausible in this space and should it have happened or should it have, that is my favorite thing. It's just the aspect of debate and the deconstruction of story. I think that's what we come to it for. I love fantasy, getting to just get lost in it and, and just using like all of that space as an escape. And particularly when it comes to video games, man, getting, I just, they're bringing back the uh, living room video game, which has been a real thrill for me. I just got the new Gotham Knights. So I was like, bro, when are we playing? Can we play together, play on the same couch and do the missions together? I just think to me, fandom saved my life at like multiple points in time, but specifically as a depressed teenager who was undiagnosed as depressed. First in getting to escape in books, and then later when you find people who like those books, shout out Chicago Comics, <laughs> there was like, oh, this is where my people are. And they're just as weird and unsure about their existence as I am. And they care as much about these characters as I do. And I knew I was going to be into fandom for life. You know, my parents are nerds and they love sci-fi and everything, but it wasn't until I got to Chicago Comics and um, they had the entire first print edition of Sandman. So it's all the, mm. the issues in their very first printing bundled. And it was like, they were selling it so cheap. It was like $250, but I was a poor college kid. So for me, I was like, when am I gonna have $200 to spend on this? I have to pay rent. And they saw me just looking at it and just like dreaming. I'm like, I need to have it. It's on a top shelf, it's behind the counter. And this woman comes up to me and she's like, do you want it? I can just get it down for you. And I was like, no, I can't afford it. She's like, well, we could just hold it for you. I was like, you couldn't possibly hold such a treasure for me for any length of time. It could be six months. She's like, I don't care. we will just hold it for you if you want it. We want it to go to a good home, somebody who cares about it. And I was like, wow. And it's to, to this day, my most treasured possession. It's older than I am. It is getting that story helped me make the career decisions I needed to make to get out here because I knew that Neil Gaiman was 28 when he wrote it. I was 24 when I was reading it. And I was like, oh, there's space and time and I can take my actual lived life and put it on a page in a weird fantasy space and people will still acknowledge and potentially love that. And it was just, it was literally a life-changing moment. And it was all just because I liked comics and someone saw that I was passionate about a book. I think that that's the power of fandom is it can take you all over the world without you leaving your living room. Mm. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you. So <laughs> it was like, it was layered. It was a roller coaster, but I feel like like the genuine, oh, this, I love this. This is joy. I want to hear your stories. I want people to hear your stories. I want people to see you. I feel like I just saw like the Joel I fell in love. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. Tell me about your joy. Wow. I. As I, I, I stay perpetually grateful. Like, it's just, I have to, you know, speaking of recovery, like, I'm sober. Yeah. I'm five and a half years sober. I need to stay grateful. Otherwise, I got a whole other list of issues. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I, I live in that, man. I stay sober for a living. I make money as a hobby. Mm -hmm. That's my truth. Mm -hmm. And, um, true words, four and a half years. Same. Mm -hmm. It's just one yeah, of those yeah. things. And that's things. Stay sober for a living. I make money as a hobby. Without my living, I'm not eligible for that hobby. Mm. Not eligible for life in any way, shape, or form. And uh, so God guides me in everything that I do, but I'm, uh, as it relates to projects, I'm really, really excited about currently painting my masterpiece. 
Um, you know, I, I got my SAG card in 2004 doing extra work. I did extra work for three years. I came here with a classically trained with a BFA in theater and film, uh, trained by a legendary uh, Broadway director named Marshall Mason. And I was convinced Hollywood was waiting for me. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Boy, was I so <laughs> That was such a real hearty laugh. <laughs> that we all identified. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I and I, I mean, I had cockroaches in the kitchen. My first three apartments. Oof. My first apartment was in Silver Lake on a hardwood floor in February. I had an air mattress, not a pot to piss in. I used to put on three pairs of pants, three shirts, and I bunched up my clothes in a ball. And I slept like this. And I was my first job was I was slinging hot dogs and hamburgers in Universal City Walk. And I was mm. proud I had a job in Hollywood, boy. Mm. Listen, <laughs> I always just carry that. Like my vision in life is attack the island and burn the boat. Mm -hmm. That's it. There's nothing behind me that's going to serve me. And so, but through, you know, I was, I was a slave. I was a hostage to myself. Mm -hmm. I was in the bondage of self. And through 18 years of, of producing independent film and suiting up and showing up, um, I'm now producing the first ever live action series for the Ethereum blockchain to be produced by a Web3 company in direct partnership with my production company, Exertion3 Films. So what does that mean? Um, I am the executive producer, creator, showrunner, and playing the lead of a new series called Razor, which is a not so distant dystopian Los Angeles that takes you deep into the world of neural implants, hacker culture, and the underbelly of black market crime. And so now, uh, Gala Games is arguably one of the biggest blockchain gaming companies in the world. They launched Gala Music, where they have partnerships with like Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, and they raised five billion and they're putting a billion into Gala Film. And my company is the first company to partner and roll out content with them. And uh, this has never been done before. We are speaking of fandom. You know, we already dropped an NFT collection before even rolling a camera. So that is storyboards, concept posters, pre-visualizations, animatics, and each one of these NFTs has different utility and they will actually be earning tokens. So when people own these tokens, they will actually be able to earn tokenomics by holding that token off the success of the series. So we're actually reading, we're doing an IRL table read with 150 people. We're gonna be reading the entire season out loud. Whoa. Like doing everything out in the open. One of the NFTs is the pilot episode that's 25% redacted, like a CIA document. Are you gonna do it in like VR? Uh, so, so we've already built AR and VR worlds. There's, there, we've actually already built those worlds that are informed by the script. So you'll take the script and you'll be able to AR activate it. And then the, the redactions will glow like UV light. So you'll be able to Ugh. see the underlying text. And then it creates motions and sequence and physical moments that actually appear on the page. So we're really playing with the notions of fandom and utility and audience engagement. We're doing a Twitter casting competition for three lines in the series, right? People are gonna hashtag RZR casting and put their, they're gonna put their self tape out into the ecosystem and the Razor NFT holders will upvote of all the tapes, which top five Whoa. go to our casting director who's rep by CAA, and then they will actually be cast in the series. And this is all the stuff that we're doing before we wow. even go into principal photography. So it's, it's really, really, really exciting that like, there it is. That, that motion picture entertainment and cinema, I fundamentally believe in the next three to five years will be somehow tethered to a blockchain mechanism. Guaranteed, it's unequivocal, guaranteed. So even if you look at like, gaming, for example, or if you look at like sports, for example, they'll be tethered to HoloLens. So you'll watch your NFL game and you'll have your HoloLens and you'll have metaversal elements that will be appearing in front of you. You'll be able to push in on the 50 yard line. Did he actually step in? Mm. 
Oh, you did step out. Okay, cool. let me pull that. Let me check the under over in Vegas. Oh, let me buy that jersey. Oh, I got price on that jersey. Let me put that back in the market. Oh, I just sold it for 0.25 ETH. And you're watching again. Okay, let me get back to the game now. All right, hold up. And and all this stuff is going to be connected to oh, a blockchain mechanism. Oh, Tony Stark in the one scene in Iron Man when he's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's very much like Minority Report. Like that's how I see See, the that's future so of entertainment. Age, I went to right? There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was on Stepperwise, which also had really great interfaces. <laughs> Whereas now we're able to create content that is informed by the demographic of who we are in Web3, which is why when I conceptualized this series, Black Mirror meets Mr. Robot, Black Mirror meets Mr. Robot, that's what rang in my head. Mm. Because I knew the 18 to 35 year old male demographic that is crypto, blockchain, and Web3, that's what they want to see. I was like, okay, cool. This is going to be the boilerplate. Now, how do I build that out? How do I build that out? How do I build that out? And uh, the lead character, Grimm, he develops this technology that he calls the acumen. And through a, a series of failed craniotomies, eventually implants it into his cerebrum, and it allows him to access the World Wide Web instantaneously in real time, download and transmit that data in a nanosecond. And in a den of thieves, you can imagine, he, he is either infinitely good or infinitely dangerous, depending on which way his moral compass sways. How do you be the least of all evils? while still maintaining the desire of a god complex. Mm. And it becomes a chess match between him and other warring factions within the grid zone of 2035, post-nuclear blast, Eastern Europe, after the, the war of oil and grain and all this lore we're building. So I could go on at infinitum. Yeah, it's I very exciting. Your... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. It's yeah. very exciting. Wait, I don't want my phone in my ear. This is like, yeah. It's really exciting. I do want to say that when you were yeah. telling the one part about your story and you were like, and it rises up, I saw in my head like a little like screen, like rising up and pulling up a little blue draw outlined mountain. I think that's cool. It was a great visual picture that you painted. Oh, thank you. And you, you. could see, it. once again, like, I don't know, there's certain stuff, like you're building a legacy, you're creating a thing that carries on beyond you and a lot of people like that serves. And I think that's really cool that you're, you don't, you don't, you aren't waiting for something. You're creating something. And I think that's really cool, and I love that you care about it so much. Thank you. And what the, the most beautiful thing that I love about it is when I, you know, Claire Coons is my casting director, and she's at CAA. And when I sent her the casting deck, like I said to you guys earlier, there's only one white character. Mm. One, <laughs> the call sheet one through ten. There's one white character. Everybody else is African American, mm. Pacific Islander, Asian, Latino, or other. You know, it's it's what I believe this world will look like, and you, and no one's gonna look at it and be like, oh, that's a black show, or that's right. a Latino show, or they're all running for the border, whatever whatever they say. There's a space where everyone no, can no. see themselves represented. Mm -hmm. This is the world, you know, and that's what we're creating. So, wow. that's <laughs> join uh, me. <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, I'm I'm, I'm very much uh, very similar, a fan of fandom. Um, without it, I wouldn't exist as a creator, uh, honestly, um, especially in the cosplay space. So I'm very, very thankful. I, I took to, to comic books and sci-fi at a very young age, thanks to, uh, if I don't say this right, they'll both get on me, uh, Star Trek and Stargate and wrestling I got from my mother. Uh, <laughs> everything else, uh, anything nerdy, anything uh, with, with film, cinematics, was from my dad. You know, uh, So growing up, those comic books were a way for my parents to explain the world to me. Um, uh, I've always had heart problems. Um, my mom introduced, uh, one of my mom's friends through a conversation introduced me to both the Hulk and Iron Man. Mm -hmm. I was a young inner city kid, I had anger problems and I had a bum ticker, mm -hmm. you know? And so like these two things really um, rooted me in some sort of hero that I could see in myself whether they looked like me or not. 
it was just the general experience of that. Um, falling in love with that over time, you know, of course, you, as a kid, you get your favorite T-shirt or your favorite hero, whatever, you know, and then that that crosses into cosplay. And as a as a as a hobby or, or as a space that I've entered into, I would have never guessed that um, it would have taken the turn that it has. But that's the beauty of fandom, right? You never know um, who loves what you love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to be someone who got into this simply because, uh, you know, there's just not enough folks that look like me doing it, um, and just to kind of have it, there's a reference for someone who is also trying to do that. Um, to see these extensive communities that grow out of that is just the, the most incredible thing. These started as some, some person's you know, independent properties ideas, you know? Uh, very, very similar to you, I, I have a, a property that I'm working on that's loosely based on my life growing up in Philadelphia. Um, and it's called The Power of Touch. It's about a young boy who develops the power of psychometry. If you're familiar with Star Wars, that's the ability to access uh, memories through touching innate objects, mm. or, um, inanimate objects. Um, that leads him on a very long discovery, and uh, there's an, also an element of time travel uh, to where he sets out on a personal journey to rewrite a lot of wrongs in black history mm. while learning along the way that some of those things need to happen in order for us to move forward. So it's very... Um, it was one of those like long projects that I just kind of taken a uh, paragraph here, paragraph here. If you're familiar with Philadelphia, you're familiar with the move bombing. Um, um, I, my grandfather grew up four or five blocks down the street, stayed in that house. So a lot of my summers I would ride by the one lone wall that they left standing as a reminder for many years. Um, and I always wondered what that was. You know, it's just one wall that looked like it belonged to a house and it is charred all the way up the side standing in the middle of a field of grass. And um, one day as a kid on the way home, I touched it and like, I felt the most overwhelming feeling of sadness that I've ever felt. And I could not really put it to words. And I didn't say anything and I didn't ask about it for about a year. And then when my dad and my grandfather told me, I broke down. Um, That story stayed with me for a very long time and through um, both history, you know, a love of history and that, that love of fandom, I realized that that story could resonate with a lot of people. Um, as I started to work on that project a little bit more and start to put more comic elements into it, I realized that with, even though it's a story about a little black boy, it's something that does touch everybody. And that is really what fandom is about. You create something that touches everybody no matter what the reflection is. Art is and always will be in the eye of the beholder, right? And so like, if we're out here making art for each other, if we're out here making art to inform other people, um, it's always important that you include those perspectives. But sometimes those stories are about people that people can't see themselves in. So when you have uh, a space like sci-fi or comic books where everyone kind of comes into it with the same energy, you know, we're, we're here because we love something, but we're here because we see ourselves in these people. Um, you, as a creator, as a person who is a part of that community, no matter what, you can't help but be inspired by it. There's so many parts of us, like just the different range of just these first three stories of joy that we've heard that have resonated on so many different levels. Like that's the power of story. Like we are hearing stories. These aren't stories, though they may have trauma, they are not trauma stories. Mm. They are universal stories. They are, to quote one of my favorite people, it's the heart in the art. And I want you to see this. I want you to hear these. This is as much important a part of our conversation as our gripes, our grievances, our hurts, our pains. This is important. 
I want you to hear all these stories of joy. I want you to let those stories resonate with you as much as you let the stories of trauma resonate with you, and that you take these moments to enjoy humanity mm-hmm. and people existing with different interests, different talents, different areas, just telling you a story. And we're carrying on. Oh, ooh, things that are, things that are making me happy right now. I, <laughs> the fact that some shows are returning back to what television used to be, where you got like an episode a week, hey. is bringing me a lot of joy. Hell yeah. Where I'm like, oh, this is cute. Like, I don't have to, like, there's no guilt in the binge watch anymore. I'm just like, all right, now. Um, the one that's probably, I have been saving it, I'm very excited. Um, it's the season finale of Great British Break Off. Yes! Um, waiting for that. Very excited <laughs> that this was a super wholesome season this year. Very, I was like, oh God, but I love so many of them. I mean, can't really, like, Giuseppe's energy last year was so good. <laughs> I don't even know how to touch that one. Um, so like, that's bringing me a lot of joy. There's also, the um, NK dropped a new book, NK Jemison. Hey. Yeah, she dropped the sequel to The City We Became, which is probably, like, if y'all have never read any NK Jemison, like, you're missing out. <laughs> uh, because, like, I don't know, it's the, like, having a complicated relationship with, like, faith and religion and things of that nature. When I read an NK book, I'm like, oh, She's taking me to church. Mm-hmm. Like it feels, it feels that good. And it's not because they're easy books to read. It's like the you I, like I find myself reading in case work, and I'm like, a I have never I never question the confidence in which she writes. Mm-hmm. Every word has this assurance on the page. Um, doesn't mean that it's pleasant. It doesn't mean that it isn't hard. It doesn't mean that the characters are all, like you're not rooting for all of them. Um, but the worlds that she builds are so deep and interesting and, um, and complex. And so I just like, I kind of like, that's, I, that's like, I was like, nobody fucking talked to me. Mm. The sequel has come out. <laughs> I will see you in 72 hours. Picking up an A.K. Jemison book is similar to picking up an Octavia Butler book. Yeah. Where you're like, I'm about to be in for some very hard truths. Yeah. But also just the most epic journey. Like, it's about to be, like, just, just next level. I love falling into her books and just disappearing, like you said. It's yeah. really wonderful. I describe reading Octavia Butler like, Okay, so you have to get a life-saving surgery, but you're not allowed to have painkillers. <laughs> because her stuff, she will cut you fast mm. so quickly. And the precision of her language. Mm. It's not it's not flowery, it's not like it's not like the it it doesn't it's not one of these things that lingers. It's not self-indulgent, but damn. She knew how to put some words together. <laughs> which, which Butler book would you recommend? Um, I I always start with folks' short stories. If they got a short story Sorry. collection, I start with their short story collection because short stories are really fucking hard to write. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also gives you an idea of how they build worlds. Mm-hmm. And um, and also the cool thing about short stories is you get to throw ideas at the wall 
and just play with them. Um, I think uh, like the fascinating thing about Butler short stories is she doesn't, she didn't actually enjoy writing short stories. So the only short stories that we have of hers are the ones that are actually published. She's like, these are the ones y'all don't get any others. Cause she's like, I, she, she was said, I only write, I know what I want to write. If it's a short story, then it's a short story. It's not me trying to figure out if this is, if there's a novel in here there, I know when it's a novel. Um, so her short story collection is great. Um, I really loved the, what is it? I think it's called speech stories. I can't remember which one, but it's, it, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant short story. And then also blood child. Um, so the, I would start with her short story collection and then strap up, read kindred. Like I, I would say, try to read it. I just did it like it was a, a, a hard, cold bath and did it in, in one sitting. Um, because it was like, yeah, and it was just like, oh God, like, um, and then the, the parables, the parable books are just- I started with the parables and I'm going to say, start with the short stories. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, this is just my life. Is this where she's, she's prophesizing. She's, yeah. like, she's seeing the future and it's not good. Yeah, it's no, really it was like, it's like Octavia warned us. No, I, don't, I don't know how many people were listening, but Octavia warned us. Yeah, <laughs> no one's listening. It's, it's horrifying. Um, but uh, also a good guidebook for when we get there. Yeah. Um, I do. So that's bringing me a lot of joy. Um, and then as far as... Um, I got really, I've gotten really into gardening and foraging. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I love it. And I think it's like the... It's and it's fun to sort of because there is a fandom surrounds the two because like I've you've got Black Forager like she's the most famous one on TikTok and all that jazz but there's this whole community and I think like the power of discovering and also it's a reclamation because it's specifically for Black and Brown folks so much of the food that we ate was forged <laughs> um, and it's, it doesn't mean it was like poor people food or like. It was the stuff that we had access to right. and the things that we made and sort of the reclaiming of that and being able to go out in my backyard and be like, yes, all of those weeds, those are delicious and we'll make a salad. Um, and it's are far more nutrient dense than half the stuff that you'll find at the grocery store. Um, so that's been fun. I've met a lot of really cool people. And it's also food is an amazing way to understand ourselves and understand other cultures. Um, and like, if you don't know how to talk to somebody, be interested in their food's culture, mm. like their like their their culture and their food. And it's like a it's a beautiful segue into learning more about how they view the world. Um, and also, the food is usually it's really good. <laughs> so yeah, that's those are kind of those are the it's like science fiction food and then rediscovering like kinship with nature i think sort of the ex the expansion and i think it sort of all falls under the sci-fi umbrella too because so much of science fiction is what it means to be human and like the expansion of that question is like what is our relationship to the more than human world and expanding that and sort of deepening or re or reclaiming a lot of that that may have been lost in all of the noise of industrialization and those sorts of things. So, yeah. Good. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you for sharing those parts of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. Tell me something good. This is good. <laughs> it is good. I feel so blessed to uh, 
be in the presence of this greatness here and that we are great people. Mm. Um, I too, sober since uh, 2012. Um, It's gonna sound weird, DUI has saved my life. Mm. Amen. Um, Got one in 2010, got one early 2011, was forced to go to, uh, in the beginning, a uh, 12 month and then an 18 month uh, it was so good, I took six years to finish it because I didn't want to just be out there on my own. Um, but in the course of that, met wonderful, wonderful, wonderful woman, Dorothy Perkins. Um, wouldn't let me get away with no shucking and jiving, <laughs> no tap dancing, no... Uh, either we're going to talk about the real shit or you're going to die. <laughs> um, saved my life. Uh, it opened me up to love, being loved, feeling like I was worthy of being loved, like I deserved love and I deserved to love others unconditionally. Um, Love and accept and celebrate others unconditionally. Um, Right now, I I mean, after uh, Stargate, came back to LA from living in Vancouver and found out it didn't matter. Uh, didn't matter I'd been on TV for 10 years. Um, so it was back to, you know, uh, literally auditioning for three lines. And, and uh, so this is kind of exacerbated drinking. Like, this is not freeing me. It's enslaving me, as we enslaving me. Um, so upon my sobriety, uh, I just sat back and let the world bring me what it was going to bring me. Um, like my first audition being sober was God of War. Which I literally in the old days I wouldn't have done it. Um, because the script they sent me was so incredible that I said this is gonna go straight to offer. This is there's no way that uh, I'll even be in running for this. And then my agent said, it, it's, a, it's a video game. And then I cussed my agent out. And then I thought about it. I said, look, you said you'd be open. Mm-hmm. If you could get rid of this affliction, mm-hmm. you would trust the universe to bring you what you needed. Mm-hmm. God of War. Um, so since then, I've just been kind of living and enjoying being open to us. And, and not, not just us, it's all of humanity and what joy there is in it and and finding the goodness in everyone even though some people you gotta dig a lot further uh, <laughs> um and it, it's just been uh, living blessings um script i wrote back in 2009 all of a sudden and developed it with two different studios never saw the light of day um company wants to do it um and i've also realized that i I can't just be an employee Mm. you you have to own ips you have Mm -hmm. you can't sit around waiting for someone to hire you so to once again uh this cat (laughs) madison jones been trying to get a hold of me for over a year and uh finally my agent said no you have to like talk to this young man you have to 
He had written this thing called Fang, uh, which is the story of, uh, of, the, of the vampire mythos, but from a different perspective. It started in Africa, and it has been around since the dawn of man. Uh, and it was this, this, this young brother has written two full seasons, the music, the everything. I mean, I'd never come to find out. He's partnered with one of my personal heroes, Suzanne DePass. Um, and, you know, if you're a 60 year old man like Susie, Suzanne DePass, and I almost said Susie. <laughs> uh, and Barry Gordy, I mean, there, you know. Um, and through that, uh, he's written a series of novels. And I'm not a voracious reader. These three novels were over 800 pages apiece. I read them all in one sitting. Wow. That's how. And it's um, basically the story of witchcraft uh, from the dawn of man. It's like if the Godfather met Sopranos met Da Vinci Code, like, and it's all centered uh, around women and their power in this world and uh, how since the dawn of man this has all been controlled by these covens and uh, to literally companies are saying okay how do we get this done I don't know that's your job <laughs> <laughs> um, but we have a who's who of, of of, of Hollywood attached. Um, and truly, it, it's just such a blessing to not have that yoke around my neck anymore mm -hmm. and be free and sober and conscious to really be open to the blessings of, uh, of the universe, of which I consider today one of them. This is like to meet this collective mm -hmm. is far greater than anything I could hope for. And I, I want to thank you all. Thank you all for putting <laughs> it together. Uh, it's just the blessings continue. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. And congratulations on your sobriety. Yeah, that's a lot of years. Yeah. Yeah. You know that's right. That's you know that's right. Come on. I got a whole grown child between you. 21, 22 years right here. Man. So anybody out there, it works. It works. It works. Christina, can I put the question back on you? Let's yeah. bring in you, Yeah. Yeah. Tell us. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, wait a minute. Um, so most people know me like through hosting and through cosplay and those things, but I like, I'm an actress. And like that is what I wanted to be since I was a little girl. And I just got to do a project and I keep talking about it, but it's called Headless, The Sleepy Hollow Story. And I played Judy Gardner, the Mia's assistant. She's fantastic. She's really great. She's got a great little dress. And this voice is also one of the things that brings me joy because I got to talk like this for an entire show. It was really great. Ten episodes. They're all on YouTube. Go watch them. So I was so excited about this because they came to me with this part and they gave me a chance. And it's the idea that me at 36 years old am getting I'm living a dream that I wouldn't have thought possible. And I think about 
like everything that I've gone through to get to this point mm. and my thing, like I got to do this show, I got to be a part of this, but I also got to go home that night and after we finished filming and did all these things and, oh, it's really, I'm sorry. Um, I was told for the longest time that I could not have kids. Mm-hmm. And I, like when I found out I was pregnant with my son, I literally bought my house. Everything that has happened since I've moved here and decided to live open and honest and just to exist as my full self, Ooh. like the doors that have opened in that was to move from Columbus, Georgia in 2014. I met my, moved in November, met my husband in December, went on from that and just remember like lose, cause I wasn't gonna leave. I was gonna stay in this town where I was not happy. Mm. And I went and I sat down one night and I said a prayer. I said, God, if you open a window, I will jump out and open a door, I will run through it, but I can't be here anymore cause I'm sad. And the next day my job went out of business. Wow. And I looked at that and I went and I sat down and I put a date on the calendar and I said, this is the day that I am gonna move to California. I called my mom who was already out here and I was like, all right, I'm gonna do it. What are you gonna do when you get here? I don't know. And I kept, I joked, I had like, had just gone to Dragon Con. It was my first convention. <laughs> and I like packed up my, I packed up my books, my cars and my comic books. Mm-hmm. And I put everything in my car and I, drove 36 hours with my friend Brooke in the passenger seat listening to Taylor Swift and blasting the One Direction album that just came out. It also happened to be their last one. And we got on the road and we drove 36 hours overnight from Georgia to here. She flew back, had never been on a plane before in her entire life. And she flew back from California to Georgia. And it was all this stuff and it just started happening. I turned 29 and I truly believe in golden birthdays. So I turned 29 on the 29th of January and I know that it was a monumental day because it was my birthday and my husband, who oh, well, now husband, he said, hey, I'm gonna meet you. I'm gonna come pick you up. I go and he hands me his wallet. I was like, don't hand me your wallet. I don't want nothing in there. <laughs> I don't like people handing me their wallets. I don't handle other people's money. <laughs> and he, I open it and there's two tickets to Wicked because I always told him the last song I sang, ever sang to my grandmother was a song from Wicked and I'd never seen it. I used to listen to it at night and hear like, just imagine what it would look like on stage because I couldn't afford to go to it. And I would just listen in my head to it. And so he had tickets to it. And on the side of the corner, this all ties back to fandom, I promise. Sitting on the corner that very night on my golden birthday as I'm out celebrating, Sir Patrick Stewart. And I had my three heads of the dragon for Star Trek were Leonard Nimoy, Sir Patrick Stewart, and obviously Nichelle Nichols. And (laughs) I met two of those, but to have him there that night, my 29th, I'm like, sign, sign sign so i followed all the signs that sign led to okay maybe i'm I'm where i'm supposed to be and then i kept going and i decided one day i didn't want to do what i was doing and i left my job and i said i'm never going to take another job unless it's in entertainment and i kept doing that and i have not taken a job that is not entertainment since 2017 and in all of that i also like in 2019 we bought our first house and I looked at all the rooms and I was like, oh, okay. I was like, well, this will be an office. And two weeks after we bought our house, I found out I was pregnant with my son. And now we are two children later. And I'm teaching my kids about fandom. I'm sharing Star Wars Galaxy with my kids. I'm watching those things. I'm 
creating. I'm doing all the things that I love with little people that I love. And I know that if all of this went away tomorrow, I still have my family at home. I still have those people that I love with every fiber of my being. And that is as much a part of my dream and my joy as the fandom portion of it. And I would not be here, but by the grace of God, because as you all know, like there's been times I wanted to quit fandom in the last two years Mm. and I didn't. And I'm sitting here right now surrounded by people that I respect and admire being presented with opportunities to create and talk and share joy. And hopefully in all of the joy and struggle and different things that we have shared with you today, I hope you saw people. Mm. I hope you listened. I hope you saw people. I hope you saw our hearts and saw that sometimes you really need to understand that the correction is a blessing. Mm. The correction is a grace. Sometimes we have to step outside of ourselves and understand that if we are going to have these tough conversations, they're called tough for a reason. Mm. They're not tough because you quit. If any of us had quit any of the things that we were doing prior, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation. We wouldn't Mm. be in this world creating. We wouldn't be able to take up space. I want you to go out and take up space, but there are some of you that also need to invite people into your space to be heard. Not to respond, but to listen. Because your friends are trying to keep you as their friends when they are talking to you about these things. These are not attacks. It is not making everything about race when you can't take your skin off. You don't get to go outside. We can wear all the costumes in the world. We can play all the different characters in the world, but we still have to go out into this world and exist as people of color. And we just want it to not be so hard. And we don't want it to be hard for our kids. Every kid deserves representation. They deserve to see themselves, but more important than that, they deserve to safely do so. They deserve to not have a dream that comes with death threats. They deserve to have a dream that is able to be seen to fruition without hate for no reason. Everybody that is out there that you see, access does not mean be an asshole. There's There's so much that we've all collectively gone through, experienced, and this is an opportunity to use our voices to say, like, it's enough. It is enough. We are people. A platform does not give you the privilege to hurt, mm. to say whatever you want to, to bully a person to the point that they want to take their life. This joy is resistance. Mm. This joy is honest. This joy is truth. Listen to the things that we've said. Put aside ego, put aside all of those things that make you want to hear an attack and hear, hear the hope in the conversation. If that conversation can be successful, there is no telling how united our fandoms can be, and not only that, our world. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you to all of you for being here and doing this with us today. Um, oh, well. I'm sure our Instagram handles and the like are on the bottom of the screen under those lower thirds. However, give these good people a visit, a follow, and drop by and say a kind word sometimes. I'm Christina Ariel. Have a great day. Yet you 
ask me who I am And if I am a man You ask me who I am I'm the stone they turned away Satisfy and explain Hi there, this is Chief Master Sergeant Walter Harriman, your favorite gatekeeper. Have you ever wondered what it takes to become a certified Stargate technician? Well, now you can find out because I'm going to share my knowledge and experience with a select group of aspiring and enthusiastic gators. I want to give you a chance to be a hero too. That's why I'm happy to announce that on March 11th, I'll be taking a small number of students for my class, Gate Tech 101. Tickets are on sale now at thecompanion.app slash events. You won't want to miss this because it's not just a Stargate Master class. It's a Stargate Chief Master Sergeant class. See you there. But for now, Chevron 7 is locked. <laughs>